brethren, would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. As you're turning there, it behooves me to thank you for the privilege of being able to be a part of this retreat, and in particular to be able to seek by the Lord's grace, expound from the Word of God. I want to thank Brother Ken for the invitation. I was talking with a close friend of mine this morning about how wonderful an atmosphere this is. And uh, Brother Curtis, thank you just for uh, your labors and the brainchild of forming this event. I think it's wonderful. And it's a joy to be able to fellowship with like-minded brothers and sisters as we fellowship and seek to glorify God in all that is said and done. With that said, my assignment this morning, as I get these notes pulled up, is to preach in the first session, Purpose Holiness Amidst Worldly Temptation. Purposed Holiness Amidst Worldly Temptation. I want to invite you, as I often invite our people back in Arab, to please rise in reverence of the reading of God's Word. I'm not sure what many of you are familiar with, but often back home we do a type of response upon the ending of God's Word. I often will say, this is God's Word, and I invite our people to say, thanks be to God. And so uh, I want to invite you to do the same upon reading this whole chapter of Psalm 73. The Word of God is as follows. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say... How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casteth them down into destruction. How they are brought into desolation, as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant... 
I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. This is God's word. Thanks Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Might we offer once more again, beloved, a word of prayer, asking God that he might bless this time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in your son. Thank you that in him we have eternal life. Thank you that in him we have forgiveness of sins. Thank you that in him we have peace and joy. Thank you that because of Christ alone, you have saved us and delivered us from hell and granted us grace that we might know you. And I ask even in this time that you would grant us such a degree of grace that we might know you more. Thank you, Lord, for your word that has revealed yourself to us. And we beg in accordance with the power of the Holy Spirit that you might open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your law, that our hearts might be enlarged, that our affections might grow upward, Lord, that after we leave this retreat, we might say what great things God has done for us. Oh, Lord, would you allow us, even, even in this hour, to be changed? Please, Lord, allow us to die to self, to cast away any temptation of worldliness, to not live for these temporary things that will one day perish, but to live for you and for your glory and for the sake of your Son. I beg that you would grant me grace that I might preach for Christ's sake. Oh Lord, please put away any temptation of pride or people-pleasing, but may it be for Your Son. I beg, Lord, that You might grant me grace that I might see it as an audience of one preaching for Him. I beg, so far as a sinful men might be able to, that You would grant me grace to preach Christ. As I beg for Your people in front of me, oh Lord, thank You for these dear souls. And I beg that you would grant them grace that they might be free from distraction, that they might be fear from a wandering mind, and that they might be able to see Christ in all of his glory as in this text. Please, Lord, we beg these things and we trust that we will be helped for you are God who delights in helping the helpless. This is us, Lord. We confess humbly to you that we are needy and we beg in accordance with your covenant mercies that we might be helped. I offer this only in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, you and I are well acquainted with the reality that scriptures speak both emphatically on and exhort authoritatively against the subject of worldliness and to speak of it In an opposite way, yet the other side of the coin, we know that the Scriptures doubly speak emphatically on 
and authoritatively for the subject of holiness, of being pure, of walking in grace, and to be conformed unto the image of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, beloved, I would dare emphasize with a greater degree that you are aware of this because this is the preoccupation of the sessions over the next couple of days. This is why we've gathered, is it not, to discuss the theme of holiness and against this, against worldliness. You know well, brethren, those Scriptures that are found in the Word of God that as John the Apostle writes, love not the world. You may even be able to quote, even now, the rest of the Scripture, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know that text, do you not, beloved? You have that committed to memory. It's hidden in your heart. You know this. You, you might be familiar, friends, of Scriptures elsewhere that, that condemn ye adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? You know that warning. You know that word of condemnation and rebuke. For whoever is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You know this, don't you, friends? And, and even as I quote these scriptures, perhaps your mind is already illustrating the text in which you picture Demas, that, that friend of the apostle, that co-laborer in the gospel. And yet it was said of him in that final inspired letter of the apostle Paul, he deserted me. He left me because he loved the present world. You know these things, right, friends? This, this is why we're here. And yet, with the familiarity of these passages and the warnings that are found therein, you, you might say, oh, but, but Brother John William, not only do I know the text, I even have some proper theological categories for defining worldliness and the temptation of, of not being holy. You, you, you might quote Ian Murray, perhaps, our beloved biographer, in which you say worldliness, brother John, is departing from God. It is a man-centered way of thinking. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things by the present and material results. It weighs successes by numbers. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which it is suffering, and it declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. You might say, yes, that's my confession. Another one of you might raise, in light of that particular Baptist press in the back there, our beloved Spurgeon, who defines worldliness and that diametric opposition to holiness as that inward struggle of the old nature's contentment with dust. You might say, yes, and amen with a hearty loud word and so with that said to be redundant once more you might again say i am quite acquainted with this subject before us to which i say amen i'm thankful i'm thankful and yet beloved dear friends isn't it frightening terrifying that with our scriptural understanding of this doctrine of holiness and 
the threat of worldliness, even with our theological knowledge and our ability to quote old dead guys and our present beloved brothers who we highly esteem, that the impact of the world can still be upon us. That we can still live for the things that are diametrically opposed to God and His glory. To to know that even though our minds might be filled with the glories of these truths and the realities therein, we still know that there is a war that we have to fight. That we fight that threefold enemy, as it's often termed the world, the flesh, and the devil. We stand opposed to such things. And perhaps to rephrase what I'm getting at in a more exhortative and perhaps more pertinent way to the title of the session, that regardless of how reformed we are, regardless of how emphatic you are about the five points of the tulip, that we can still fall into the temptation of worldliness. And not even simply in just the external way of how we live. Not not simply even in just our garb or the tongue or how we present ourselves, although that is definitely a pertinent application of which I believe will be discussed in future sessions and perhaps in the Q&A of practical outward holiness. But in particular, and what I want to, I pray, exhort from this morning, is that we can have this inner disposition of worldliness. In which we live, we go about our days tempted to have a worldview, an inner being of the man that's more affected by what God has not said than what God has actively said in the Scriptures. And so to emphasize again, beloved, my main hope and point in this session is that I want us to live in purpose holiness amidst worldly temptation. That's my hope. That's my prayer. And I use we on purpose. God help me just as He would help you to this end. And so, friends, to frame our time, I want us to consider Psalm 73 and to be overtly candid with you. My ambition is not to try to exposit the whole of this chapter, but rather to pull out truths from it, ideas and implications from it, and then seek to apply it and to to seek to exhort from the text. And I want to frame it in four headings. The reality of worldly temptation. The reality of worldly temptation. The realm of worldly temptation. The remedy for worldly temptation and the reward against worldly temptation. The reality, the realm, the remedy, and the reward. Let's consider now, beloved, that first heading of which will preoccupy our time. The reality of worldly temptations. Let's think for a moment. Let's think. Let's think. Who has written this psalm. We know by virtue of the superscription here in Psalm 73 that it was written by Asaph. 
And that name to some might be familiar, to others it may not, but we know by virtue of the chronicles found in the Scripture that Asaph was a man whom God chose through David to be one of the Levitical worship leaders for Israel. This is Asaph. This is a man that was particularly gifted in leading the people of God in worship. This was a man, as we consider this psalm holistically, was a man that in Godward transparency, a man that in openness before the throne of grace articulates an inner struggle of the soul that he's experiencing, yea, even as a worship leader of the Levitical nature, a difficulty in his disposition, as it were, because he contemplated as he contemplated the world around him. And it's a struggle and a difficulty that I might submit to you this morning, beloved, that you yourselves may have toiled with. That you yourself, even as you're sitting in your chairs, whether they have plush or not, you're thinking and you're asking, perhaps even this, as Asaph did. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is their life at ease? How come the godless and the unrighteous seem to go about their days on this terrestrial ball without any sorts of conflict or detriment? How come? Why, O oh Lord, is this the case? Why is it then that your people, your covenant people, we who are near to you seem to be on this world and always experience suffering, always experience pain, always experience death in such a way that might be described as horrid in our final breaths? Such conflict, such questions of Asaph, Leads him to even admit in the text of Scripture, as we've just read, that he claims my feet were almost gone in light of this dilemma before him. My steps had well nigh slipped. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Oh, to, to summarize it, perhaps, beloved, to, to give you a, a, a a little nutshell of what I believe Asaph is articulating is that our beloved Levitical worship leader was tempted to worldliness. He was tempted to look at these unbelieving, godless individuals that lived a life of ease, that had comforts, that could indulge themselves in pleasure and say, why can't I do that if all the time I'm living in the sphere of the covenant community and nothing but woe is brought upon me? These people indulge themselves, and when I seek the Lord, pain seems to come in light of suffering. And these people, they just have everything they want. They, they talk the way they want. They do the things they want. They indulge their lustful desires. And there seems to be no recompense. Oh, he, in admitting this volition of his soul, says, So foolish was I, and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee, verse 22. Now, I, I, I bring that up, friends, not simply just to give what I believe is just a quick snapshot of the context of this psalm, but to, I pray exhort on this matter that temptation is a reality for all of us to question God in such a way that we might be tempted to go to the world 
And I want to press and parse this out just for a few moments, friends. let's, Let's just consider just for a moment the fact that the reality of temptation, just as it was for Asaph, is the same for us. For you and I, even even this morning. And and I want to caveat that and nuance it because perhaps a a difficulty in our circles, in our theological camps and our convictions and uh, our our, uh, adamant desire to stand on the Word of God and to actively pursue holiness is that we can just think that this is far removed from us. Why? Well, because we might look at the churches in which there's smoke machines and think, that's worldliness, but not here. We, we might think of those who wear perhaps skinny jeans and v-necks and stand behind a plexiglass pulpit and say, that's only for them. Worldliness is that. Look at them. Look at them. Not for us, though. We're, we're sovereign grace Christians. We, we, we are far removed from that. But I want to submit to you, beloved, that perhaps we're just opening up the can of worms of which it say, take heed lest you fall too lightly. What do I mean by that? Let's, let's just consider Asaph for a moment further. Isn't it amazing that this psalm opens up with a theological statement? Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are clean of heart. And that's true. It's so true, and it, it helps us in understanding the whole of the text. But, but consider this. That's a true statement. That's theologically right. This, this is not only a man that's got right dogma, but, but just consider the fact that God, by virtue of His grace, used the writings of this dear man to be inspired and found in the Psalter. This was a man who knew truth, and yet still succumbed to temptation. Oh, beloved, do you, do you see what I'm about to, about to say and bring forth? You, you, you can read Calvin's Institutes. You can know Spurgeon's quotes left and right. You, you might be able to quote out of the authorized version. And yet, this does not remove you from the ability and possibility of being tempted. Consider that, beloved. And I, I'm just, this is simply in this first point to warn us. Warn us. But, 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 but think further that, that this was Asaph, the worship leader. This man served the people of God. This was a man that was esteemed amongst the brethren. A man used of God to, to lead the people into singing worship unto His name. And yet he himself said, My feet and I slipped. I was a beast before thee. Do you, do you see it? Can you... you <laughs> You're, you, I'm, I'm sure I'm looking at the cream of the crop as far as the Christians. You, you're convictional. You serve your church. Whenever the doors are open, you're there. You're greeting people. You're, you're behind the pulpit. You're, you're perhaps doing a host of activities and tasks in order to serve the church. And yet, even then, beloved, your busyness will not remove the temptation to be like the world. As a matter of fact, you you might be doing all of these things. You might be laboring. You might be leading in song on a Lord's Day. You might be leading a devotional. You might be taking out the trash. You might be teaching and rearing your children in the way of the Lord. And yet when you look at the world and you see their life at ease and you look at your own difficulties in the midst of it and you might say, why? 
Friends, beloved, do you see? Do you see the temptation? Think, think not that you're removed from this. I simply, I simply want to raise that to you just as a warning. A warning to my own soul. You might then ask a question. In what ways may I be tempted then? Because you just said, okay, you, you, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be, your, your eyes are going to be mesmerized by the life of the wicked. And you're going to, to perhaps wonder, how come they get away with that? So, so what, what then may I be tempted in? Well, that leads to the next point, brethren. The realm of worldly temptation. In, in other words, beloved, the question might be raised in light of this heading. Where does, the worldliness, where does worldliness manifest itself and how it might be, be tempted to be backsliders? To be those who fall into temptation. Well, let's just consider for a moment the ways of which Asaph describes as he looks upon the wicked. We see in verses 4 through 6 that these individuals in their pride, even, even wearing their pride as though it were a piece of jewelry compassed around their neck, they appear to have no physical trouble. These are people of which, which Asaph even says, even when they die, it just seems to be a nice death. There, there's, there's no uh, uh, horrendous way. They just simply drift off. Uh, these, these are people of which uh, uh, it could be said that there is no pain. There is no question about their luxurious living. We, we, we might consider in verses 7 through 12, just kind of trying to summarize these larger chunks, that, that these individuals, this, these godless individuals, that in their corruption and contempt for Yahweh, live apparently at ease in their prosperity. These are the people in the world that are driving the best cars. These are the people that have the best paying jobs. They get to do what they want. They get to go on endless vacations. They get to do whatever pleases them. They indulge their desires and throw money at everything. These are people that have never had to, to count the money in the savings and making sure they can pay the bills. These are people that, as the text say, their eyes stand out with fatness and their heart has more than they could wish. And in that, they, again, throw blasphemies to the Lord. In their speaking of oppression, in their disavowing the righteousness of God, they simply lift up to the Lord, how doth God know? How doth He know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Oh, friends, the writer Asaph, in speaking of these people, knows their frame. And says, behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Now there's, again, much to be said here. And this is not the aim of my session is to just simply walk through and parse them out. And uh, I encourage you to do that in your own time and study, beloved. But, but I want to speak to this idea of holiness and the temptation for worldliness by trying to summarize what all of these facets are in a nutshell. And that is this, what I believe, is that they live for the temporary. They live for dust. They live for the things that will be but chaff and will burn up in that eternal fire. These are people, to 
put it in an opposite way, live without eternity's values in view. These are people that live simply for the here and now. People that indulge everything in the present and have no category for them standing before the Lord of glory on that final day. These are this people. And friends, if I, if I might now get to the heart of the exhortation in the realm of worldly temptation, might I just simply ask, are you, are you coveting those who live for the present? Do, do, you, do, you, do you see what they have and think, if only, if only, if only I could just amass the amount of wealth and just do all these things. If, if my life could just be without physical trouble, that would be marvelous. And in light of living for these things, it will undoubtedly lead you to be as these individuals who blaspheme God. To look at the lot of providence that he's placed before you, and instead of simply bowing your knee to the Almighty and say, the Lord always does right. You shake your fist and say, how come they get all of this and yet we get none? Friends, to simply move forward. We must, in fighting this temptation, I'm not trying to get ahead of myself. We must realize we live for eternity. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to fight against temptation? Think oft of eternity then. Do you want to put and mortify the deeds of the flesh away? Is that your heart? Then look to Him. Look always to eternity. If you get to know me well, friends, you will know that I, one of my most dearest brothers that I've just sat at his feet for is Leonard Ravenhill. I love listening to that man. I love reading his books. And it was said in his office that there was just a simple plaque on the back of his wall that had these words etched on it. Eternity! Because he knew that if he were tempted to begin to, to think about how come that brother's got this or that unbeliever's got that. And, and, and he just simply looked and said, I'm living in light of that day. I'm living in light of that one glorious yet terrifying reality in which I stand before Him who died for me and give an account for all that was done, whether good or evil. This, this, is, this is us, beloved. And even to just parse out these, these, these individuals that are there, the unrighteous, they have no suffering. If you live with eternal values in view, you say, oh, what is suffering but preparing for me an eternal weight of glory? Why would, why, why would I covet the life of the wicked that won't know what glory is like? That won't know that the Lord purposed for it, that I might be further conformed unto the image of His Son. Why, why, why would I be tempted to live like these men when I know that my God hath ordained all things right and that He will use this to make me more like Him? You, you, you might be tempted to indulge the flesh. That wicked body of death that you carry with you all your days, you might be tempted to be as the worldlings, to indulge every fleshly desire, every pleasure that peers through your mind. You might be tempted to give yourself to it, whether that's a host of things. You know your frame, beloved. 
You know what peers through your mind. You know the affections of your heart that are against the Word of God. You might be tempted, though, to give yourselves to such. But why would you do that? In light of that eternal joy that we have in the Son, that, that one day when we stand and see Him face to face, our joy will spring eternal. That we will be able to look upon Him and, and no earthly thing will be in view but Him, Him, Him. Oh, friends, extravagance? Consider from Philippians 4. Let your moderation be known unto all men. Let your reasonableness be made known unto all men. Why? The Lord's at hand. He's coming. Your King, He's nigh. Live for Him. Live in such a way that reflects Him. Oh, and perhaps, and beloved, this is perhaps more an exhortation to my own heart. Tempted to live for people. All these. To live for the applaud of men. To live that men might esteem you. Isn't that such a worldly thing to live for? To live for people that will die just like you. Why would you do that when you could live for Him? To, to live, beloved, for your eternal King. But let's, let's, move, let's move onward, friends. To the third. And that's the remedy for worldly temptation. I've, I've spoken of the reality that is that you and I are capable and often have given ourselves to this temptation to live for the world. We've discussed perhaps some ideas of the realm of which we might be tempted and the realities therein. But I want to give a remedy. And I love, I love the way the text teaches us in this way. Look at verses 15 through 17. He, as you can see, this inner toil of the man Asaph. He says, if I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Verse 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. And here he does. He gives, he gives in light of this toiling, he's afraid to mention it. Otherwise, he lets the children of God stumble, makes the children of God stumble. He shares what reoriented him. It shares what sobered him. To cast off worldly temptation and live unto holiness. And what is it? Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. All oh, friends. What was the remedy for Asaph? Public worship. To go into the sanctuary of God. To meet with the people of God. To give himself to the ordinary means of grace from God. Oh friends, I, 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 think, I think it's wonderful. Consider, this was a backsliding man. A man that was tempted as he said, my feet and I slipped. I nearly abandoned my Lord. And instead of just simply staying at home, indulging the flesh, giving himself to worldly temptation, what did he do? He went on that Sabbath day to meet with the people. He went to consider the Lord in all of his glory. Oh, friends, might, might I quote again another dear particular Baptist that summarizes it far better than I? Or, yeah, he shares the same name, so that's a plus. John Gill. Brother Ken, I thought was about to shout up and say, hey man there. 
John Gill, what does he say concerning Asaph here in this text and the remedy, remedy for worldly temptation? He went to the tabernacle or house of God where the Word of God was read and explained, prayer was made, and sacrifices offered up, and where fellowship was had with the saints, and communion with God Himself, which for one hour a moment is preferable to all the prosperity of the wicked during their whole life. This shows that though the psalmist was beset with temptation, yet not overcome, it did not so far prevail as to cause him to neglect public worship. God help us and relinquish the house of God and the ordinances of it. And it is right under temptations, doubts, and difficulties to attend the public ministrations, which is the way and means to have relief under temptations, to have doubts resolved and difficulties removed. Now, friends, might I exhort now in light of our dear brother's commentary on the text, are you tempted? Are, are you looking at the wicked and you're wondering why, Lord? Be with the people of God on the Lord's day. Be with them through the ordinary means of grace. Be with them as you hear the word and you read the word and as you sing the word and you hear the word preached and you observe the word in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. Give yourselves to these things, friends. Oh, friends, isn't it glorious that that on the Lord's Day, when we gather with the people and we hear the word, whether it's all those different facets, sung, read, preached, meditated, we get this wonderful revelation of God in which our souls are rebuked and comforted by the fact that we belong to Him. And why would we thus live for earthly, worldly things? Yes. We, we consider, friends, uh, the sacraments, uh, the ordinances, uh, the Lord's Supper and Baptism in which perhaps depending on the frequency of the meal in which you take it, you, you, take, you take the bread. And you, and you take the cup and you're reminded of this eternal communion with God which was wrought by Christ Himself. And your mind is reoriented. Why would I live for the world? Why would I live amidst and give myself to temptation when I have Him? When I have this inner delight of my soul? When my joy is filled in recognizing that though my sins be high, His grace is higher. Oh, friends, give yourself to the ordinances. Oh, remember your baptism, beloved, in which you are buried with Christ and raised with Him in newness of life. Remember that you are sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why give yourself to those things for which Christ died? Why would you do that? Remember that you were bought by Him. Oh, friends, prayer. Prayer of which you seek your God. And that's what I love about this psalm, beloved. It's a prayer to God. He confesses, Lord, I'm stumbling. My feet have slipped. I'm looking at the world. I see see what they give themselves to. Why? Why? And then he says, I went into the tabernacle of the Lord. I went into the sanctuary of God and God revealed Himself to Him. Oh, friends, give yourself to prayer. If your church has a prayer meeting, give yourselves there and beseech Him. Take Him at His word. Cry and wrangle with his promises that he's bought in his son. You, you, you want to fight worldly temptation? Confess it to him, Lord. I'm stumbling. My eyes are being captivated by the world. I, I'm, I'm slipping. <coughs> oh, and isn't it a bolster, beloved, too, that not only in the corporate prayer meeting, 
as you pour out your heart before the throne of grace, having full confidence that Christ, your mediator, is praying perfect prayers on your behalf, that you're bolstered with the prayers of the saints. That you hear your brother saying, Lord, help him. The Lord reminds him of what he has in the Lord. Reminds him of all the glories that are in the Son. Reminds him, I pray, that you have bought him and you have kept him. And that there's so much more joy in Christ than anything the world can offer. You hear the prayers of a tearful saint sister. Who, who, who maybe with a meek and quiet voice begs those promises of God on your behalf. And hearing this wonderful Wonderful household of God taking you, as it were, interceding on your behalf. It reorients you and says, I should not live for these things. Oh, friends. Isn't it true, though, that our frame, that when we begin to backslide, we, we actually avoid the church. We avoid the saints. We, we get perhaps angsty. We get awkward. We, we run away. When the Scriptures teach us, go to them. Run with full force to that Lord's day. Oh, friends. Again, to consider the Lord's day, the Sabbath of God is but a foretaste of eternal things. This is what what reorients us. Worldliness, as I've said, is is looking at the temporary and wanting to give yourself to it. To, To take... What the world says is true and right and putting away what God in all of His eternal glory has said in His Word. But the Lord's Day helps us realize we're made for so much more. Amen. We're to get that foretaste of what will happen for all eternity. Oh, friends, why would you, why would you not want to give yourselves to this? Isn't it amazing that the Scriptures teach us that they, they, they don't have this category. They, they live, they drink, and then they die in their minds. We live for something greater. We have all eternity, beloved, with Him. With Him. This, this friends, is, this is the remedy. And, and I, I, I failed in my notes uh, to raise, I've quickly passed over, but I, I do... I do feel compelled just to simply pass, to, to state it and then to move forward. But not only is he reoriented to look to eternity, but he realizes that those who live in the world will one day perish. Friends, these are individuals, if you're tempted to live like, are those whom the Lord has put in slippery places. They are those who are consumed in a moment. Their desolation is near. Why? Why? Why would you live for those things? Why? It, 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 it should at least sober us for a moment to realize that the things that your flesh wants to indulge in, men are being sent to hell for. God help us. God help us. Now, I, I want to close with a final consideration beloved and that is the reward against worldly temptation the reward against and I will say this in in a closing remark but there is a glorious juxtaposition here in the text he begins it in articulating what the wicked have they live for themselves they blaspheme God they have pleasure and pomp and all of these 
these temporary things. And then when the, the shift happens in Asaph's mind, he then reflects upon what he has. And if I were to just give it to you in a simple statement, it is this, God. He has Him. Is, is this not what the text says? Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Again, the closing, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all Thy works. All friends, God is worth more than all earthly pleasures put together. He is the fountain of all delight. He is the source of all true joy. And the reward for those who are belonging to Him by faith, by grace through faith, is Him. It's Him. Take everything, but give us Christ. I... uh, I want to close with just simply reading a verse of him. I often quote this hymn to um, my beloved people back home, Christ Fellowship, because it is one of my favorites. So they have to bear with me quoting a favorite all the time. But I believe this summarizes what we should be for, beloved. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Are you looking to the world? Lift your eyes to Christ. And I assure you, the more you look at Him, the more you gaze upon Him, those things that you're tempted by will just be dim. My dearest Leonard Ravenhill again would say, grim. The things of the earth will look grim. Why? Because Christ is everything. Christ is everything. Let's now pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for all that You've given us in Your Son. Thank You that He is everything that we need and all that we have. And I ask, Lord, for my own soul and for the souls of these dear people that we might have a greater affection for Him that we might be aware of the temptation that we can often be so beset by and yet have a greater understanding of what you have given us in him that we might flee from this temptation. Oh Lord, would you help us? Please. And I ask this in Christ's name alone. Amen.